Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern. And this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest this week is current principal of Washington, D.C.'s Perry Street Prep, Rachel Crouch. As the school year looms large for all of us, it's a time of uncertainty for students, their families, educators, and administrators alike. There's a lot of discussion about concepts like culture and connection, but actually fostering them in school is much more challenging than defining them or placing them on a PowerPoint. In our conversation this week, Rachel shares how she was able to transform Perry Street by using restorative practices, building a sense of community, and creating a culture where teachers feel supported and encouraged to hold one another accountable for their own and each other's growth. Rachel's belief of honoring the humanity of her students and staff was an anchor in this episode, and it seems in her practice as well. No, and then it's like, so the kids who look suspend, that's an opportunity to build a relationship with the most vulnerable student. So it's not that we are being permissive, we're being restorative. We are building relationships with students. We care about kids, so we treat them like we care. And if it was your own child, I'm pretty sure, you know? So we get into those conversations like, these, the kids, this is somebody's everything. Like when they walk in the door, someone sent them in here who loves them to death. Like you have to take care and treat them like eggs because I wouldn't want someone to treat my child like an egg if they walk to school, right? Julie and I loved Rachel's willingness to be candid about her journey to get to this point. Building a school culture is hard work and the openness and vulnerability that she shows is a lesson for all leaders. We hope you enjoy. Our guest this week is Rachel Crouch a Howard University alumnus and principal of Perry Street Prep Charter School in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Rachel. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. I'm so happy because Rachel and I have known each other uh, from a past past experience, past job uh, at Chavez Charter School. And then I saw that she's, she's actually in the news, uh, both personally with her house featured in a magazine, which was really beautiful. And um, more importantly, uh, as uh, just an award-winning principal at Perry Street Prep, Perry Street Prep is, is what's considered a turnaround school. Um, and so it, it, it has so many things going for it, um, led by, by Rachel. So we're so excited for you to be here. And we, we would like, there's so much you could talk about, but we, we would love to focus on culture. Um, so first, before we go into culture and school culture, um, can you tell us a little bit about Perry Street Prep, your journey um, as coming in as principal and, and where how, how far it's come? Absolutely. So I got to Perry Street Prep in 2015. At the time, Perry Street was a tier three school. I thought I was prepared for what I was walking into. <laughs> I just come from a high performing charter school. Uh, I was not. Um, we walked into everything in chaos so students in the hallways when when they're supposed to be in class cursing yeah. screaming it, i don't know if you've seen you have seen lean on me but it was similar to that where you were like what is going on not only that though the operations money we were in the red the food services every part of perry street that was considered like an operating part of the school was sterile um we partnered with an organization called 10 square which I'm glad because they came in with me year one of turnaround and we were on the ground every single day, fixing school culture, trying to figure out how we can change the school culture. Cause we knew that if the culture didn't change, I mean, we might as well not even teach. Right. So we spent the year one coaching teachers, figuring out what we wanted the culture to look like, what we wanted Paris Street to look like. And then at the end of the school year, making difficult changes and difficult decisions so that we could actually move forward in a different direction, right? And by the second year, we, so that the first year I had to let go of 50% of the staff in order to get this done. And by the second year, it was 25%. And every single year we are intensely coaching teachers trying to figure out if they are um, aligned with our mission and vision and if they are able to take command of a classroom, right? But by the third year, we had fully staffed people that we hired. And the third year, we didn't let anyone go. The fourth year, we didn't let anyone go. The fifth year, we let two people. But you know what, you know what I mean? Like, we started off heavy, and now we are. This year, we were hiring more people than we had to let go, right? And when I say that, I mean, like, hiring six teachers, letting go one person. 
Um, so that part of the culture changed over time. So by the third year, we were literally so laser focused on instruction and like dividing kids into small groups and figuring out what they know, what they don't know, and how we're going to bridge the gap. Uh, we started that work the second year, but we still weren't ready because we had a lot of culture issues. So while we were in classrooms and um, observing and giving feedback around instruction, we still knew that there was so much work to be done around culture that we were just doing the best we can right now. Third year, we were ready to go. I had my whole team. I hired everyone in the building. Everyone was talented. Everyone was gifted in teaching, and we literally hit the ground running. We had small groups being pulled out, and with fidelity, too. So people always say they do small groups, they do PLCs, and they, you know, the things they say they do, but not with fidelity. But we literally, like, I would go and track teachers' attendance based on, like, when they were pulling groups. I would go to the group, make sure everyone was there. Um, and my whole leadership team did this. So everyone knew we were relentless. Like, this has to be, it has to happen this way because we believe this is the way we're going to achieve what, you know, where we want to be. Um, that third year also, we developed a more solid leadership team. The first year, you know, we had a leadership team meeting the last half of the year. The first half of the year, we didn't have anything. The second year, we had one, and we had it weekly, and what it was to put out fires. The third year, we had an agenda. We said, the first person who speaks is me. I speak on talent management. I speak on this. I speak on that. My director of operations, you speak on attendance. My APs, you speak on K-2 reading levels. You speak on 6 to 8. Like, so we were very clear when we went to the leadership meeting what your um, role was and clear on where we were going. Every single um, part of the leadership meeting was based off of the PMF, our score report card. So we spent a lot of time looking at our score report card and figuring out how to change it and make goals based off of that. By year four, we were, um, that was our sweet year because we had spent so much time in year three um, pulling small groups and not really knowing. I mean, we knew because we were tracking um, students, but you know how, like, until park happens and you get that data back, you don't really know for sure you got, you know, your bank for your buck. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the third year, we did so well as it relates to growth and we celebrated it so much with teachers. They were like begging the next year to be a small group teacher and they wanted small groups in their classroom. Mm -hmm. they so we were able to like um, build momentum around that and like get teachers on board to see why it was so important. And now they think it's more important than we do, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then the fifth year, steady stride. And what has become difficult for us though, we went from tier three to tier one. We want to be number one. So now our conversations are around what do we have to do to go from good to great? Mm -hmm. um, so just, just for our listeners who don't know, I just want to interrupt you. So tier three is low performing. In, okay. in Washington, D.C. So her school's in Washington, D.C. And and tier tier three is low performing. Uh, and tier one is the top performing schools in the city, in the city. Uh, so, I mean, that they went from, from, yes, from good to great. So keep going. I'm sorry. I just wanted to translate that term. No, no worries. I was just saying that it's gonna, it's been proven, it's proving difficult to go from good to great. While we are experiencing a lot of growth and we are mm. like, in every metric, like no matter what we get acknowledged every time we do it is because of growth in the special education and growth period. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to like bridge the gap between growth and achievement, right? Mm -hmm. Because like while our growth is high, our achievement is still low. So we mm -hmm. need more fours and fives in our building and, mm -hmm. and they're getting there. It's just that they are taking time to get there, but they're growing there five times faster than every other student in DC and every other student nationally. Wow. 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 And I didn't pick that up. We just got a bold improvement award that says we got it because our students mm -hmm. are growing five times faster. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It's why I really wanted to have you on because, you know, people talk about, about the achievement gap and, and how it's so uh, difficult to overcome. Um, people talk about different populations. So you have, yeah, you mentioned special, special education students with special needs or learning difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're growing on in every category. And that, that is amazing. And so we just have, we have to have uh, Principal Rachel Couch on to speak about, about school culture and, and, and for even for schools who may be, so a lot of our listeners, uh, just a lot of people who are familiar with our work. Um, aren't typically in these schools like Perry Street Prep. So Perry Street Prep, for, for our listeners who don't know, is in, correct, Southeast D.C. Um, it's War 5. Okay. Okay, Northeast. Uh, it's similar to, to uh, Chavez Parkside where we met. Um, and this is, this is just a high poverty area for our listeners. I mean, they, you know, the, the, kids are, the kids are walking to school or taking public transportation to school. Um, and what, what they see in their, in their neighborhood is all around is... is um, is poverty and and it's it's not a diverse school in that way 
um, wouldn't you say most of your students are, are below the poverty line or at the poverty line or right around there? Yep, we are a Title I school. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's something that I wanted to make sure our listeners understood. Even if our listeners do not teach at a school like that, which I'm hoping that we'll, uh, we'll acquire more listeners who teach at schools like that, because that's my heart. Um, however, I think there's a lot that they can learn from you about school culture in general. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the buzzwords in education right now is restorative practice, restorative justice, or basically just the opposite of not suspending kids. Um, <laughs> how can we deal with, with negative behavior in the school? in a humane way. And so we asked you to speak about, we always ask our listeners to uh, select three-ish words mm -hmm. sort of uh, related to their, their topic. So if your topic is school culture, could you just share briefly for our listeners, what are your three words? And then we'll sort of go from there. My three words are talent, mm -hmm. accountability, mm -hmm. and growth. Talent, accountability, and growth. So talent, when you first said that before we started recording, I was like, wow, I would have never said school culture, talent. Um, so what does that mean? Is that talent of the students, talents of you, talents of the teacher? What, what does that mean? It is, you have to have the right adults in the building mm. to get this work done. Mm. I have the mindset that all kids can learn and all mm -hmm. kids can grow and all kids can change. Mm -hmm. so without a team that believes that as well, I mm. can go so far. Mm. And so when I say talent management, because it is the most important work I do, I will sit and I will interview 50 math teachers before I hire one, because mm. I need the perfect person for my building. Mm. And so, and we will put a sub in there and we just won't hire, we'll, or I'll go in there or we'll put our subs who are great in there. Um, and we haven't had to like hire in the middle of school year, like recently at all, but I think talent management is the most important because the, the adults have to be capable. They have to have the mindset. They have to have the same beliefs as you do. And that, I mean, yeah. So getting them in the building was the first step. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was over time, mm -hmm. but it was uh, over like three years getting like the right staff in place. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that you were able to recruit some of the, I mean, one of the teachers we taught with, uh, Naisha Coleman is in your building and she's, I'd say she's the greatest math teacher I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen <laughs> teachers all around the world and Naisha is the greatest math teacher I've ever seen in my life. I'm trying to recruit her to join my team if you could put in a word. Um, <laughs> but you know, that, that she trusts you to say, yeah, I'll leave my current school and go to that school because I trust you, uh, I think is enormous. Could you talk a little bit about some of the behaviors or, or features or signifiers that you're looking for when you are interviewing a teacher? I think that mm -hmm. like, it, it seems like you have a really clear criteria mm -hmm. in your head. And, and I feel like that's the sort of thing that maybe people aren't always reflective about. They're just kind of like, oh, you know, I'll be able to tell, or this person has a good resume. And uh, it sounds like you have a very clear vision in mind. Mm -hmm. um, so could you talk a little bit about like your sort of ideal candidate or the candidate's ideal for your context and your uh, school culture? Absolutely. And so the ideal candidate, and it's so crazy because my leadership, when we all joke, because I always say in the first five minutes, I can tell whether or not you would be a wow. And sometimes I can just get on the Zoom and as soon as say hello, I can just tell, I can feel like you can just tell with the tone of voices, like how people carry themselves. So first I'm just reading body language to see if you are a confident mm -hmm. person and how you respond to different um, questions. I ask people if they've ever played a sport. Um, that's important because <laughs> in sport, you learn how to get down, get back up, get down, get back up. You take, you know, a loss a little differently than people who haven't. And then most of the, um, most of the time we're having a conversation um, where we're talking about what percent of the, um, of the learning that she thinks she, or he thinks he's responsible for, uh, you know, questions like that. You'll be surprised what answers I get. Um, getting to know them too, like, what about your um, last principal didn't you like? What did you like about her? You know, asking questions that push them to like literally think about the answer and like it kind of tells you who they are a little bit too. Because people who tell me <laughs> like some answers about the principal question, they're like, the principal's unorganized, blah, 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 and they were just going on and on, on about the hate principal. And I was like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you any <guinea> sides? <laughs> <laughs> So the conversation with the person is how we know. We don't even get into pedagogy, teaching. We don't even get into whether they can teach. We literally only talk to them mm. about their personality, who they are, what their hopes and dreams are, like what they believe to be the issue is in urban education, like just questions like that. Because if you can't even pass that part, I don't even care if you can teach. Mm. Mm. And that's the first interview. That's me. So I'm the first round of interviews to decide even if, if they should go on to the second interview. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that's how we interview. It's very casual. I love it. So first is like, I think it just foundational for you is mindset. 
Mm-hmm. Um, can't do they? And would would you agree that it's do they believe that they can move kids? Mm-hmm. They can move student mm-hmm. achievement. And if if they don't, then why bother? Yeah, I mean, I've had teachers tell me they were only responsible for twenty five percent of the learning because. <laughs> Oh, wow. they gave the whole breakdown. Who else was responsible other than them? Wow. Oh, wow. so it's not just it's not just it's like some parents. It's a bold take. Oh, <laughs> parents. It was fifty percent parents. Even wow. Fifty percent parents. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. Mm-mm. No, you're yeah. not going to second round. <laughs> questions like that, people don't realize they don't like expect them to come. So mm-hmm. they don't have like a cookie cutter answer for it. Mm-hmm. So they have to actually think on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just trying to like get at those um, types of answers. Okay, very cool. So that's the first one, talent, and you feel like that's essential. It's like a, this mindset. Have you found, so have you found, um, we've had a previous guest talk about this concept of collective efficacy, the, the collective belief of the faculty. Have you found that some teachers, maybe when you first got there, or some teachers, maybe you hired them, but they their belief was, you know, say they said, uh, teachers 80% responsible or whatever. Uh, have you found that the overall culture of the adults sort of brings in or speeds up anybody else's belief? Have you found that anybody sort of changes, I guess is my, is real my question. Not dramatically, but, but in some ways, or do you find it's, they walk in the door and they believe it and that's it. Okay. When are we going to talk about suspensions? Ah, let's do it. Let's talk about suspensions. (laughs) Okay, so that is a great question because as much as I want to believe that everyone I hire believes what I believe, and I can believe what I believe, just believe what books believe, right? right, right. <laughs> um, when we stood in front of the staff, I stood up and I said, this year we are not suspending any kids. We are going to have zero suspensions this year. Wow. And I was met with a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. A lot. <laughs> And Indeed. you know what's so funny? The teachers who have excellent classroom management mm-hmm. never send kids out. Mm-hmm. Those are the teachers who were giving me pushback. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <You're like you>. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a lot of pushback because they were like, well, what do we do instead? And mm-hmm. then, you know, my partner, the director of operations, she's like, we're going to give them logical consequences. We're going to give mm-hmm. them consequences. Suspension doesn't help them. So we were getting pushback, pushback. I was still getting teachers coming to my office with a child like, he needs to be suspended, <laughs> you know? And then, but, and I was appreciating those type of moments because it was able, I was able to peel back the onion with them to get them to see like what their actions did to, you know, incite him or get us to where we are right now. And so every time a, an adult came to us with a child or if an adult had an issue, we would go meet the adult in the classroom or the, um, they would come in my office and we would talk about every single thing that happened and what the adult could have done, could have done differently to change the outcome. Once you do that a couple of times for the teacher, they don't come back. Because they kind of understand now where, like, and I always say, like, we're not suspending him. He's going to be welcome back. And uh, at Parish, we always say, you're always welcome back. So even when I bring kids back, um, sometimes I have to say, he's always welcome back. (laughs) When I tell, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in meetings, in um, professional development, everywhere we go, we say, the kid is always welcome back. You're always welcome back. And then I always tell the teachers, and I have to ex- extend that same grace to you, right? Like, mm-hmm. you all make mistakes, I welcome you back mm-hmm. all the time. We have to do the same thing with kids. So mm-hmm. by February, zero suspensions. Mm-hmm. We stopped suspending in August because we thought Councilman Grasso told us we couldn't. So we thought we couldn't suspend these kids. Mm-hmm. We found wow. out in February that we could suspend kids. Wow. <laughs> we were like, great. <laughs> But then we were like, wait a minute, we haven't suspended any kids so far. We actually don't need to. Let's see if we can wow. go to the school year. Mm-hmm. We went to the whole school year with zero suspensions. We celebrated that. And then with the next school year with zero suspensions, we celebrated that. Wow. And what we found is that everyone got on board so quickly. Once they realized how the culture was shifting, because we weren't suspending kids anymore, mm-hmm. teachers had to be conscious and be intentional, t- intentional about not doing things to get kids suspended. Yeah, yeah, de-escalating. I, 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 when you know, I, I try to think about that a lot as a parent. How do I de-escalate this situation right now? Yeah, uh, because a kid's upset. We all get, we all get emotionally overloaded. So if a kid's mm-hmm. emotionally overloaded, and my husband always says to me, ever since my kids were really little, uh, we'd be in public, and my kid would start to have a tension tantrum, and he's like, Julie, you're the adult. 
Every, everybody expects <laughs> the kid to have a temper tantrum because he's two. You can't have a temper tantrum. And I just remember like, oh, dang, that's a really great moment. Like in the park, public place, my kid doesn't want to leave. He's going to scream and holler. I just can't have a temper tantrum. And I've seen parents in the park have a temper tantrum. Um, and oh, so my teachers are very emotional about their jobs. They're very passionate, you know, mm-hmm. so, and mm-hmm. teachers are passionate. Period. That's right. That's right. That's could it. you talk? I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, just say, could you, could you talk a little bit about what some of those alternatives look like? Because I feel like there is kind of a lack of imagination sometimes when we think about right. ways that we, you know, show students, um, I guess the the consequences of their actions, and and even just like if if you stop and think about it for a minute, there's a a kid who clearly is unhappy where they are in that moment in school. So what's our solution? Throw them out. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But to that point, I think it's one of those things that's just become kind of this invisible accepted norm. That's just what you do. What else would you do? And I feel like I could imagine teachers being like, "Are you are we teaching kids there are no consequences for their actions?" And it, it sounds like you are suggesting we apply more, more effective consequences to their mm-hmm. actions and give them an opportunity to reflect and learn and grow. So could you, could you talk about how some of those alternatives look? Absolutely. So let's talk about fighting. Mm. People always want to talk about fighting. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we don't suspend kids at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the teachers first were like, well, what about fights? And I said, oh, you have to pre- prevent them. Like, we can't have any fights because we don't suspend mm-hmm. kids. Like, I don't know what to do with them otherwise, right? So we mm-hmm. were like trying to play that angle. But what I was trying to get kids and parents to see, because parents also were pushing back on us and saying like mm. their own child needed to be suspended. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so what we're trying to get them to see is, I always use this example is, okay, the kids are fighting in the gym. I'm downstairs. They bring the kids to my office. And the, um, the teachers are like, they need to be suspended. They're fighting in the gym. I get to my office and the kids are like playing tic-tac-toe together. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, should we suspend them now? <laughs> like, they made up. <laughs> Wow. So, and granted, I talked to them and had a conversation with them about this being our community. Like, you can't fight in our community because mm. it's all we have, you know? And, like, getting them to see that this is bigger than you. You are part of something, you know, bigger. And you embarrass me. And I try to take the personal note. Like, and you embarrass me. I, you know, you're making me look. They always ask me about you, you know, trying to, like, absolutely yeah using your relationship with them that's Mm -hmm. that's, that's awesome yeah and so we also do um in school suspension if we have to but it's not really in school suspension it is a half day in the most reflective boring (laughs) possible activities to be in because they have to answer a series of questions they have to go volunteer downstairs and cater to they have to so it's a lot of things they have to do during that in school suspension so it's not just like sitting in a room with 30 other kids and everyone's like throwing paper at the sub Right. It's thoughtful work that they have to do. Mm-hmm. And also logical consequences. Sometimes they, um, kids get sent out, we bring them right back because the kid was um, sleeping in class. And my thing is like, okay, wake him up. <laughs> like, yeah. He's still sleeping. I'm like, okay, well, let him sleep. I think he's tired. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and like coming at it at a basic, like just level of like, oh, I think he's tired. Let him sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and getting teachers good with the fact that they have to it can't be their way all the time. You know, we are kind of like control freaks and we want our kids to stay up in our class and want them to be, but sometimes they're sleepy, you know? Mm-hmm. And like getting teachers to have compassion and seeing grace to kids more, I think changed the way we even interacted with kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we don't even have to say we don't suspend kids because there are no kids to suspend. Our culture mm-hmm. is so tight right now. Like we just, there are no kids to suspend. They believe mm-hmm. in it. The kids believe in our culture. <laughs> the adults believe in our culture. So we're just like at a good place. One of the things I love that, thank you for sharing those really practical uh, tips of what you do. Uh, one of the things we saw in the video of your school is you greeting all the kids at the door. And I noticed the second time that I watched the video, the first time I didn't notice this, but the second time I watched the video, one of, one of the students says to you, you like, I think some of the kids come up to you and hug you. Um, and one of the kids said to you, oh, I forgot about that video stuff. And you were like, just play it cool. Or you yeah. the <laughs> um, like I heard that in the, in the, in the video. And so definitely you greeting them at the door. Do you know mm-hmm. all of your students' names, for example? Like, do you know do you know their home wow. environments do you know uh the moms do you know brothers sisters uh i imagine like that is a big piece of you as a, a huge piece so we always say parish Street as a family school because mm-hmm. we're not like stem art or anything like buzzy and catchy we uh-huh. say we're a family school because we get to know every family individually they get mm-hmm. to know us we bring parents in once a month for events we so we are intentional about engaging our families mm-hmm. so they're always in the building that's awesome. um, every single morning for the last four years, I have stood at that post to say good morning, 
every single season. Not the first year. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> 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 the first year. Second year starting every single morning, we stand at the post. We say everybody has a post. So, so every teacher's at a post, every leadership team member's at a post, and we say good morning to every single student who walks past. Mm-hmm. Every single parent. And you know what's so funny is uh, someone came to interview my parents a while back, and they said the best thing in my parish tree is they greeted every single morning. Wow. Not even the academics. Wow. <laughs> wow. They, they want to be seen. I mean, we, we talk about yeah. that with some of our other guests who are child psychologists or different types and, and talk about how people want to be seen. They want to be seen. They want to be respected. They want to be valued. Yeah. Uh, check- like, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And creates an atmosphere like we're always accessible. I am always accessible. You mm-hmm. don't have to talk to a secretary to find me. You can mm-hmm. literally direct me on my cell phone. I'm standing at the front every single morning. Mm-hmm. And like that makes parents feel safe to know that like the people are always there. No matter what, we're all you can contact us. I feel like those are those two conversational pieces um, about about accountability and community are kind of two sides of the same coin. And I, I love the way that you approach that conversation with those two students of, you know, it's not about don't disrupt your your teacher or don't you want to do X, Y, or Z. It's we've built a community together. Right. And that's something that you that you like and value. I want to continue because you feel seen. Mm-hmm. So do you want to act in a way that might compromise that? And I think that's such a more powerful motivator for students to be like, hey, you're a part of something important and your role to play is what makes it what it is. And it, it feels so much better than a, than a sort of, um, I guess like a deficit mindset or or like just a punitive mindset of like teaching mm. kids a lesson. And it sounds like it's it very much starts from just, you know, kind of having, uh, knowing the kids' names, having those kids feel seen. So then that, because I think a lot, a lot of teachers, a lot of leaders that I know talk about culture and community and mm-hmm. they, they, they got a, they got a wicked good PowerPoint <laughs> that they go through <laughs> or they can quote some books, but it sounds like you, it's a very, uh, very human thing with the way that you approach it, right? Like the, this idea of if you really want people to buy into a community, they have to first feel seen as a person. Mm-hmm. And then that community mm-hmm. kind of builds out from that, which I feel like kind of bleeds naturally into this idea of growth. Cause when you're a part of a community, mm-hmm. you feel, not only do you feel seen, but mm-hmm when you grow and change, you feel seen too. And I think that's a really powerful thing. So could you talk a little bit about how um, that sort of community contributes to the growth that you've seen and that you, that you hope to continue to see with your, with your staff and students? I mean, we literally can do, like, so when we get feedback to teachers, my feedback starts with, the kids are eating out of your hands. You literally could do whatever you want in here. Mm. But that being said, you have to start doing X, Y, and Z, right? So. The community has has become like a place where you can learn anything. You can mm. grow. You can mm. be in class. You're not disruptive. Like it's not disruptive. You literally come to school to learn. And unfortunately, it's not like that at Title One schools, right? Like at predominantly white schools, you come to school, you learn, you go home. At Parish Prep, you come to school, you learn, and you go home. However, at other Title One schools, you come to school, you make some fights, it's chaos. You need a sub, then you need another mm. sub. Someone just cursed you out. The principal yelled at you. know, so it's like all of this drama, right? Um, so I think Perry Street's culture lends itself to just straight up, we can just teach right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we do. So, <laughs> yeah, we, um, you can tell, you know? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So your, your second word was accountability. Uh, is that of the students, of the teachers, of both? Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose accountability? It's really for the leaders and the teachers. Mm-hmm. I believe that everyone in the building should be held accountable and should be held accountable frequently. So mm-hmm. for example, I mentioned 10 square earlier. 10, mm-hmm. I have a leadership coach through 10 square. We meet mm-hmm. once a week and go over everything I talk about in my leadership team. Mm-hmm. And she holds me accountable for all of my deliverables and, and granted, I'm going to do them. And, but I appreciate the support. I appreciate the coaching. I appreciate her, a thought partner with me. And then, so when she's holding me accountable, it doesn't feel punitive. It doesn't feel like she's judging me. It feels like we're all parties together and she is, you know? And so that's my role with the teachers. It's like, I have to hold you accountable. And at a very high bar, because we have so far to go, you know, we have to do twice, twice as much as everyone else has to do because of where we are, right? So like holding teachers accountable to that high bar, but still um, leveraging, still like getting them to trust me, right? But Teachers knew our expectations were high. We say it at every meeting, at every staff meeting. We talk about it all the time. And their expectations are high for the kids because of that. Um, it just trickles down. 
so holding kids accountable as well. So they're adamant about kids doing homework, kids coming at eight to do the warm up, you know, so it's like holding them accountable because they are students in the building. We've even had um, Zoom parties with the kids in different grades to tell them how we're going to be holding them accountable next school year and how they're going to have to work harder, smarter, be different kids, because we're different adults, COVID, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. so just holding everyone accountable in the building. And, oh, can I say one more thing about growth? For sure. When the culture got, like, all the way together, um, I think we were able to then, like, split kids out into groups. So growth, I believe, is the number one way to move students at a Title I school. You have to put them in small groups. You have to, like, give them a dedicated teacher at a dedicated time every single week, and that will give you your bang for your buck. Mm. Uh, anything else is too big it starts, mm. has to start bite size especially when you're dealing with so much mm. like, bite size you mean you mean growth like yeah. you're not you're not all you know we in dc do they still use the term proficient you know proficient or mm. or different things like that in math and reading but but you've grown um yeah. and you look at that like numbers do students sort of self-identify with with numerical metrics about their numeracy and literacy or or how do you how do you talk about growth with your mm. students oh it's on every bulletin board mm. it's on every wall you walk into any classroom you can see numbers of with students their names are on there their category mm. number and then you can see their map data their park data what they're okay. going where they're trying to go in every so it's it's classroom. sort of by class like in this class this is where we are versus the student names and honestly, like we've built up such a culture around like um, competition and challenge. You can literally hear kids running down the hallway to my office like, Miss Crouch, look at my map score. Look at my map score. I grew such and such points. You know, I'm like going crazy. Or teachers mm. will all the kids are growing. And everyone's so excited, right? And it's such a good time to be like at Perry Street because mm. kids are excited, adults are excited about student growth. And once everyone gets excited, it just keeps happening over and over again. That's right. That's right. So happy about it. <laughs> but everyone's like out, outgrow each other. I'm like, yes, uh -huh. outgrow each other, please. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's very cool. I think uh, one of our very first guests, Trevor, if you remember, Christy, uh, talking about leadership, talked about uh, accountability almost as self accountability because often you think about accountability as someone else external someone else is going to hold you accountable um, but I think you touched on that idea too is is that it becomes this sort of self accountability piece like mm -hmm. you said the culture we've got high expectations and then even your students hold themselves accountable which I think is really cool and I, I like that idea. I like that we've talked about both um, competition and community because I think that if like leaning too far mm -hmm. one way or the other could mm -hmm. kind of um, either leads to maybe like a complacency or, or hyper competitivity where, where students aren't celebrating uh, their classmates victories because they feel like they, you know, and I think that seems like kind of an important needle to thread of, of how can we get students competing against themselves and each other, but in a way that is like, we're working together. Um, we're working individually to, to sort of collectively change this school and change that culture. So could you, could you talk about um, ways that maybe with the, the students, you kind of get them to, to that point where they're seeing like this sort of like collective success and, and maybe making that kind of abstract idea of culture more concrete to them where they, they when they do something or they see something, they're aware of it. Okay, I'm gonna be completely honest with you because I've <laughs> done a good job of that with the students. With the teachers? You've done a great job with the teachers, mm. but we have not trickled down that type of, yeah, we haven't done a good job with the students. They're excited about their own growth and they're excited about the class growth because they get a piece of party. But they, <laughs> they can't speak to you about the school's growth and how I. <laughs> well, yeah. you've had like award ceremonies. People come out from the city to give you banners. And so they have to know. I mean, the kids yeah. have to know collectively that Perry Street Prep is growing. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe, so I would give yourself a little more credit because maybe, maybe you haven't intentionally done it. But I think I've even seen just in the media, um, your students have to know that as a school, they're, they're kicking butt. Oh, absolutely. And my <laughs> students have been there for the five years I've been there. So even when we get new kids, there was a fight in the gym and the, um, they broke it up. My old students broke it up and were like, oh, we don't do no, that here. No, we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't yeah. ride um, so they definitely have taken uh, pride into the school as well. They love, we um, take pride in our paraphernalia because we all have like 
10,000 different things to say. Oh, to <laughs> I, lo- I love that you brought that up. I do see that uh, in, in we uh, friends with you on Facebook and stuff like that. And you see like this new, uh-huh. Naisha gets like real excited about a new Perry Street yep. shirt or something yep. like that. Yeah. So I think it's all the way to our heart. <laughs> can, yeah, it contributes to that feeling of identity, that feeling of us as a community. I think, I think for sure. I'm not a, like a big t-shirt person. Uh, so I, I move a lot. So I try to be a minimalist, but um, uh, people love a good t-shirt or a good coffee mug with the logo on it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it does, that does contribute to that feeling of community. It really does. And the kids are like begging for the uniform. Like they'll wear free clothes, but they think I'm going to give them a free uniform. I'm like, no, you're not getting <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not happening. <laughs> wow. I mean, that, that shows you right there. You, you got to give yourself more credit. I think the kids see like an affinity to the school and identity with the, the, the community of, of the school. Mm-hmm. And before we started recording, we, I, I mentioned briefly about my own kids and, and this idea of like authoritarian or dictatorial versus permissive. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of have <laughs> a joke. You, I don't know if you were joking, but um, <laughs> can you talk about, you know, I feel like that is similar to what, what uh, Trevor is saying about this sort of either competition or community but that you can do both i feel like there is this this feeling like suspension is more dictatorial right and then no suspensions often people feel like that's passive or permissive um so can you if a, if a, if a if a person who doesn't know your school say well it sounds like you guys are really permissive over there like what would you say to say no actually we're not permissive even if we say zero suspensions it doesn't mean kids can do whatever they want no, and then it's like, so the kids you would suspend, that's an opportunity to build a relationship with the most vulnerable student. Mm. So it's not that we are being permissive, we're being restorative. We are building relationships with students. We care about kids, so we treat them like we care. And if it was your own child, I'm pretty sure, you know? So we get into those conversations like, these, the kids, this is somebody's everything. Like when they walk in the door, someone sends them in here who loves them to death. Like we have to take care and treat them like eggs because. I would want someone to treat my child like an egg if they were off to school, right? And so when you look at it like that and like human and, you know, see kids as kids and see their trauma, we talk a lot about that, like trauma-informed care and like what that looks like. This summer, we're reading a book, Teaching with Poverty in Mind. Mm. Um, oh, you read it. Cause Eric Jensen, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it's, good. it's good. It's one of my top 10 mm-hmm. education books for sure. Oh, yeah, just trying to stay like aware and like getting teachers to see like have more compassion it's so funny because everyone on social media says like teachers don't have compassion i mean teachers um need to have compassion for kids uh you know but it's opposite of parachute i'm like guys come on these are kids right Mm. but you know overall they you know this is like really minute things about like you know whatever Sorry, I'm rambling at this point. <laughs> no, no. I'm wondering if you could talk about, like, you initially, we, before we started recording, I believe you said t- treating kids as humans. Um, mm-hmm. could, you, could you sort of follow that train of thought a little bit more? Tell, tell us more what you mean by that. It's hard working at a Title I school. Let me say that. It because is. You're, you get so much information and you receive so much. And you receive a lot of trauma from kids mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their parents. Mm-hmm. And so you start to develop these biases. You start to become prejudiced. And then all classism comes into play mm, indeed. And, you start, and then you start to treat them like a statistic like mm. these, you know and I'm, mm. I'm like, hey, these are our kids like this is so mm. much child we have to like, mm. bring that back in and always mm. even our data walks we have these huge data walks we put pictures of the kids above the data so mm. you can play, and it's called a kid talk one-on-one not a data walk it's called t- mm. kid talk one-on-one and they can see all the kids and like you have to see they are definitely a point on this chart but that's a human being behind the point Mm. That is our child, you know? Um, so getting them to see that kids are kids is like some of the hardest work we do. That's right. And then getting them to see like you can believe in all kids, like all kids can do, or like students whose parents are absent or students who this and that, they don't, not they don't believe, but people don't believe they can learn or grow, students with disabilities. And mm. it's like, even before I got to Perry Street, I had my own biases against mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got there and started growing the hell out of them, and then they became like in the 90th percentile for this. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, guys, this can work, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, but before Perry Street, I didn't think of the kids in special ed as kids. I just thought about special ed, right? I didn't say, like, that's Johnny. His mom is Martha. She would be devastated if he didn't know how to read, right? So, mm. like, giving, like, putting stories behind names and putting, like, faces in front so they can see, like, you know. 
How how amazing of you to to admit that on a podcast um, I know, right? and to be and to be that transparent about it. I mean, that's enormous. I think I think that speaks volumes to you as a leader. Uh, how many principles? Uh, any principals listening to this podcast right now, I'm wondering <laughs> if you could be so upfront and so public with your own growth, how you used to think something that was not serving your kids. Um, and so that was awesome. Thank you for, for doing that. We even we even talked about that with Jenny Donahue uh, mm-hmm. on, on that uh, earlier podcast was that a lot of leaders are afraid to be vulnerable or they're not willing to be vulnerable. And if you as a leader can't show your own capacity to growth, how can you expect your staff to do that as well. And something that you had talked about um, earlier, Rachel, that I, I wanted to circle back to was you talked about, you have people on your team that check your accountability. And you, you so could you, could you talk about that? Because I, I thought that was really powerful that you saw someone who in the hierarchy is technically below you, but mm-hmm. you called them a thought partner and you made sure that they held you accountable. And I think, um, you know, leadership, you know, starts from the, the top down. So could you talk a little bit about that approach, how you can be vulnerable as a leader? Absolutely. And I think I have the best scenario example because awesome. at Parish, like literally, so I have two coaches, um, Alexander Cardo and Taylor Cockwell. So they allow me to be vulnerable. I can make mistakes. I can be wrong. Like I can say things that may be inappropriate to say if I'm thinking it. But what I'm, I'm trying to say, like I can say whatever I need to say to get through something, right? So I can go to them and say, hey, I messed this up. I don't know how to fix it. And then we sit down and we'll fix it together. But I can go to them and say, I've messed this up. Yeah. And I have to hide anything, anything whatsoever. Mm. And they're also very transparent, right? And when, they're, mm. when they have struggled or if they see something wrong or if they've done something wrong, they also are transparent. So mm. I, think, um, I think every principal needs a coach. Mm. Every principal needs like mm. someone who is there like holding. And then, you know, one of my coaches holds me accountable to the minute. Like, so <laughs> 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 things to be doing. She's like, hey, did you get boom, 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 and boom? Like X, Y, and Z done? And I'm like, how do you even remember that? <laughs> like, I have a coach who is big picture who talks mm. about like the um, DC report card and accountability. Then I have a coach who drills down to the details with me. And we talk about everything kind of before they happen. And not because she makes me, it's I actually want to run a path and talk about it before it happens because together we do the work. Mm-hmm. What else? What other like sticky issues? Uh, maybe, I don't know if you want to talk about COVID-19 or, <laughs> or anything else uh, that, that you feel like is missing so far, not missing, but that you might want to add to a conversation about culture. Hmm. I would say if you have to be driven by data, mm. okay? Because my first year at Perry Street, I suspended 26% of the students by December. Wow. By December. Wow. wow. It was like Oprah just handing them out. So then- wow. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't, it wasn't prizes and gifts. It wasn't cars. <laughs> no, I was messing up, right? So then Alexander came to me in December and said, hey, do you know you suspended 26% of your kids already? I'm like, really? Of course, year one principal, I'm like, they deserved it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> no. But I was eye open. I'm like, oh my God, I suspended this many kids. So then after that, we got down to 8%. But had I not known it was at 26%, and I'm a first year principal, right? Like, I wasn't going to look for that information. It would have probably been 50% by the time the school year ended. But because she put that data in my face, I changed immediately. So then I realized I changed immediately every time I see data. And I only do that because she put that data in my face and I had to change. Isn't that interesting? We're like talking mm. about a conversation about humanizing uh, the culture of your school and treating the kids as humans, uh, as somebody's child, somebody's everything mm. and helping your teachers do that. And we love that. We love to bust up false dichotomies on this, on this show. Um, and data is, is key to, to doing that. And so I think, I think both, I think some schools run, you know, run the pendulum either way, like there's super humanistic approach. Everything's community kumbaya. Um, but they're not looking at the data. They're not looking at how, how are we reaching the students with special needs? How are we reaching our English language learners? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're, you're both, you're both kumbaya and let's look at the data. How mm-hmm. are we doing with our different mm-hmm. kids? Can um, I ask you one more thing about the data? Yeah, absolutely. We have a huge data walk um, culture, right? Mm-hmm. So every year we do a uh, data walk with baseline data. Mm-hmm. Middle of the year we do winter map and everything. So our data walk includes academic, culture, suspensions, referrals, um, discipline, anything discipline, that's on one table. Mm-hmm. Um, fifth grade, sixth grade, so it's 
by grades, you can see ELA, math, um, anything data related in the building, you can go to table to table. It takes about two hours. And we do this three times a year. And it's huge. Wow. Wow. Everyone's data is on the table. So you cannot hide. Every teacher mm. is right there on the table. Mm. And you know, you hear people shouting, you hear celebrations at tables. It's become a part of our culture and the teachers are competitive. So now they are like <laughs> trying to figure out, you know. But it was literally Alexander sitting that suspension data in front of me. Then I realized that like, data means something. And you know, Julie, I read Driven by Data. I read all mm -hmm, of that mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. But as a first year principal, I was like, I'm focused. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had to get focused really mm -hmm. quick. Mm -hmm. And once I got focused on what was important, then it started changing. I think that's super useful for what I'm seeing as a trend all over the world is because of climate change, because of political strife, because of a lot of things, kids are moving from Syria, from all over the world. Mm -hmm. There's just immigrant influx of immigrants um, and migrants all in schools all over the world. And so what we're there in seeing an increase in English language learners and a lot of things where a school where might may have been, they may have been doing fine on their data and they maybe didn't think that much about it. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden their elementary school is 60% English language learners and they're like, um, also, we see the rise of autism and lots of other sort of mm -hmm. uh, learning learning difficulties and things of that nature. And so, I think this this, this that is a really good point that I I personally am not a uh, sort of um, a big person who who advocates a lot about data, but that's that thing that's useful. I think that's especially useful for our as you mentioned vulnerable populations around the world that we we do need to be looking at that data for those particular kids. Um, so that's great. Thank you for for emphasizing that point. Yeah, it sounds like you data, and I've always felt like data when it's used the most effectively, it's it's a conversational tool, right? It, it's it's a, it communicates where you are, where your students are in terms of their learning, and I think there is a way, but it's 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 difficult. Um, but it sounds like that you're doing it where data is used as a as a like I said a, a communicate communicative tool, but the purpose of that tool is to maximize that student's growth as a human being. Yeah. Right. It's like we are paying attention to the data because it kind of reifies or makes concrete where they're at in their learning journey. And the goal isn't to get them to data point X, Y or Z. Right. You look up, you see that student's face and mm -hmm. the, the purpose of that growth is to help them achieve their, their potential. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's um, that's definitely speaks to your leadership, that you can have data as that tool to be aware of where students are at, have that conversation, but to always anchor that in a very human relational kind of context. And I think that there's a lot to be taken. I'm thinking a lot about um, how we use data and how data can be, could complement a very humanistic uh, community approach to mm -hmm. what we do in schools. I think that that's a, it, that's a, a powerful dichotomy to bust up and really examine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, it's weird because some people don't use data at all. And I, um, but like, it's one thing to be at a table with a teacher and she's looking at her own data you could literally stand over her and say, what five kids do you need to move in order for your bar to be proficient? And she can look at it and say, these five kids. Okay, mm -hmm. for the next semester, you are literally focusing on these five kids. And then at the very end, seeing that those five kids got her proficient, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that is unmatched. Like that feeling, mm -hmm. that process, the um, result at the end, like the joy you feel. It's all about the data and like mm. looking at it and using it to like drive. So. And, and and as you know, to Trevor's point too, and those five kids running to your office to tell you, <laughs> look at <laughs> me, mm -hmm. and that that face and that's somebody's baby. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. So you mentioned Eric Jensen teaching with poverty in mind. Is there if is there anything else that you guys rely on, or you as a principal rely on? Are there resources about either trauma informed or restorative uh, practices? Um, or creating culture is it it seems like most of this is based on your instincts I'm just wondering for our listeners if there's something if they can't tap into Rachel Crouch's instincts is there something mm -hmm. you recommend that they check out I would say chapter two of teaching with poverty in mind was the best chapter I've ever read in any book in mm. my whole life wow wow what's the name of that chapter I can't recall it oh, can't or not what's the name but what's it about it's oh, about what? care and grace and like mm. understanding poverty and treating kids like you mm. understand you know? Mm. Um, just speaking about how you're supposed to interact with kids, how you should engage kids who have mm. chronic stress um, mm. all the time. You know, basically saying kids have PTSD and we should mm. 
treat every single child like they have PTSD. Mm -hmm. I remember there's two lines from that book that I, I, you know, I bring everywhere with me. It's always on the forefront of my mind. There's one sentence. It goes like this, but there is hope. That's on a, I don't know what chapter that's in, but it just starts off with, but you're not supposed to start a sentence with, but, but there is hope. Um, because you see all this stuff about about poverty and you see how much it, it impacts not only the kids, you know, sort of uh, social emotional, but actually their their actual brain. That's what I love about Eric Jensen. He's a, he's a cognitive scientist. Um, and then there's another line in there that I absolutely love. It says something like, for kids of poverty, school needs to be a nonstop bobsled ride of enrichment and engagement. <laughs> and I just absolutely love that. In fact, with all of this, COVID, uh, this all of this uh, COVID nineteen kids out of school, um, and of course the protests that are happening right now, what I'm looking for is an organization to donate uh, to that sends kids STEM kits and you know blocks. I don't even care, but like I just see my own kids, and they I can afford it. I can buy them so much stuff, and they have so much enrichment. Um, in their lives. And I think often about kids who don't have access to the books, access to the blocks, access to the modeling play, all of the puzzles. I mean, we, we probably have 50 puzzles in our family. I literally have sent home like 50 puzzles since mm. because mm. parents are calling saying they don't have any type of resources. Mm. I'm literally on Amazon just buying puzzles. Games. All right. I'm going to send it to you then because I'm like, <laughs> I need an organization. Well, here's, here's one right here. So we're after this, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to connect and I, w I would love to make Please a donation. Do, because literally that's what we're doing right now. Is that, that's, what, that's, that's what we got to do. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what my kids are doing and they're, they're playing puzzles and I'm like, mm, you're bored with that puzzle. I'm going to buy another one. So first of all, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to send you my kids old puzzles, but I'm going to make a donation. Thank you so very much. Rachel for being on. Where can people, in case other people want to make a donation, where can they find you? Where can they find out more? <laughs> www.pspdc.org. Pspdc.org. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for the great conversation. No problem. Thank you guys. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse.